0: Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR, from emdr approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out
1: this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com/thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Uh, it's me, Melissa, here today, along with a special guest, Danielle Ciccone. Did I say that right, Danielle? Dang it. Okay, say it for me. Danielle Cicconi. <laughs> oh, I was so close. All <laughs> <Okay, both laughs> of us have like uh, really complicated Italian last names, at least I'm assuming <laughs> yours is Italian. It and uh, is. I yes. should I should be better at it because of mine, but it's always a little tough. Um, so Danielle, is no here with me today because she and I got to go uh, to a conference together this last week. We went to the Psychedelic Science Conference um, in Denver, Colorado, and joined about 12,000 other humans <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> in a rather profound and life-changing experience, I think, for all of us. Um, It was the largest psychedelic science, well, psychedelic conference in human history, as far as we're aware of. Um, And it was a gathering of all kinds of humans, um, from neuroscientists to just interested and curious lay people. So we wanted to do a episode, uh, number one, I think for our own processing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, because that was a lot of information um, and number two, so that we could share it with you all so that you can really benefit from at least a summary of what was explored and shared, uh, particularly as it pertains to therapists. There was a lot of therapists there of different kinds. Um, and so I feel like there, it was the beginning or at least a continuation of a really important conversation between research and the neuroscientists and the clinical field. And uh, so we're going to give you guys an update about what we are exposed to. But before we get into all of that, uh, Danielle, can you kind of give a thorough introduction of yourself and then share a little bit about what drew you to the world of psychedelics? Because it's kind of an interesting professional decision. (laughs) Yes, it is. Uh Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Melissa. I'm
2: Super excited to be here and had a lot of fun with you at the conference that made it extra special for me. So still processing all of that together Uh because I love this podcast and listening to you for a long time. Um, Okay, so I'll start with my kind of professional introduction and then I'll I'll share about how the heck I got into psychedelics. Um, So again, my name is Danielle Ciccone and I'm a licensed psychotherapist with a private practice called Integrated Healing Center in Agoura Hills, California, which is in Los Angeles County. Um, I'm a certified EMDR therapist and a consultant in training, and I'm just about done with all of my requirements. So we'll soon be submitting everything to EMRIA to receive the approved consultant credential. Yay. That's so exciting. Yeah, very exciting. Um, EMDR really is the focus of my practice. It's really the bulk of what I do. Um, I was trained by the Institute for Creative Mindfulness, and I'm currently on their team of consultants and consultants and training. So um, really love being part of that team. And in my practice, I work mostly with adults, pretty much always a um, few teenagers here and there, but mostly adults. And um, I see people in the office virtually. Um, most of my clients come to me for trauma work. That's really kind of my reputation, I guess. Um, you know, PTSD, complex trauma, developmental trauma is the bulk of what I what I work with. Um, In addition to EMDR, I am trained in IFS, and I've done some training with Robin Shapiro and her ego state um, therapy model. So I I combine those methods and do a lot of parts work in my EMDR work with clients. And what this is all about is that I'm very interested in blending psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy with really quality therapy, such as EMDR. So I have some training from Fluence, Polaris, and the Integrative Psychiatry Institute. Um, That's where I've learned to do the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. I'm certainly not done with training. There's probably lots more that I will do in that area, but that's kind of what I've been working on over the last year. Um, So currently, I'm offering ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, which we can just call CAP for short since it's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. um that's you know the only legal medicine that we can we can work with right now so that's what i'm offering and um i'm partnered with a company called journey clinical so they sort of handle the the medical component of the cap work they you know screen people for eligibility they provide the prescription and it's all using oral lozenges so that's what i've been doing so far mm-hmm. um I've done individual CAP work with people, and then I also co-facilitate CAP group retreats with a colleague here named Stephanie Rosen, and those have been awesome. I'm really loving doing the group work. Um, and then I'm working with a local doctor in my area here to see if I can move into also offering IV option, the IV ketamine option for people that want that experience because it's you know it's a different way of working with the medicine. So trying to kind of figure out how we can weave that into the treatment plan um, for people that want that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we'll kind of go into more detail about, uh, the, the different administrations of the medicines and why that matters and what everybody needs to know about that. Yeah.
2: Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So that kind of covers, you know, sort of what I do professionally and, um, Okay. So I'll tell my story about kind of how I, how I got into this and I I can't help but share some personal stuff here because it it really is, it really kind of has been a personal journey. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, and this isn't always easy to talk about, but I feel like um, I have to, like, it would be, it wouldn't be true to not, you know, kind of share some personal stuff here. So um, when I was very young, 16 years old, (laughs) totally unsuspecting, you know, twenty years ago, I had a really profound mystical experience with um, psilocybin mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Had no idea what I was getting myself into. You know, it was it was recreational at the time. I had no idea that it had therapeutic, you know, value to it. Um, and till this day, you know, twenty years later, it remains mm-hmm. top. You know. One of the top experiences that I've had, one of the most meaningful experiences. Um, and that's that's kind of on par with what the research is showing, that these experiences can be very profound and, and sort of stay with a person for a very long time. And that was definitely my experience. Um, I remember I wrote a journal entry the next day trying to put into words what the heck happened. And I still have that and I still reference it and I still read it. When I kind of need the reminder, Mm -hmm. I'm so glad I did that. Um, I also experienced MDMA in the rave culture when I was younger, and even in that context, I I had some sense that like this is this is a medicine that could probably Mm -hmm. be used in some sort of helpful way, you know. But at the time, I was so young. I I mean, I didn't know where this was going to go or or how it was going to be helpful. But I I always kind of had it in the back of my mind, like these are different, these these substances, they seem to be different, you know, than other drugs of abuse, right? So um, went on to, you know, start my, my career in psychology, went to my undergrad at UCLA, went to grad school. Um, and about 10 years ago, when I was in grad school, I was at a conference presenting some of my research at the time, and I just happened to stumble into a talk by Roland Griffiths, who is one of the top researchers, you know, this was like 2013. So I had no idea who he was at the time, but I saw his, you know, his, um, the name of his talk and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Okay, psilocybin research, what's this all about? And I walked into that talk and I was so blown away about what he was presenting. I wasn't surprised because it was very much in alignment with what I had experienced But I couldn't believe that it was like, you know, being studied in Johns Hopkins, you know, that it was being taken seriously. So in that moment, I was like, okay, I gotta somehow get involved in this. I don't know how, I don't know how this is gonna, you know, come into my career, but this seems really awesome. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I leave that conference, I've got that in the back of my mind. Then after grad school, I actually got sober in a 12-step community. So as probably know that's, you know, abstinence based, right? There's no use of psychedelics there, which is kind of funny, actually, considering that the founder of AA, Bill Wilson did have some psychedelic experiences that I believe he was fond of, but it's really not talked about much in mm-hmm. that community. So, you know, I had that going on. And then I was working in an addiction treatment center for, you know, several years at the beginning of my career. And that was all abstinence-based. So there was definitely no talk about, you know, using psychedelics. So I kind of just, it was like taboo, right? Like there there was really no space or place for me to talk about my interest in that stuff. So I just kind of kept it tucked away. You know, I got trained in EMDR at that time. I um, really was just focusing on becoming a good therapist, you know, becoming a good solid trauma therapist and thought, okay, that's that's what I'll do. And then when I left that treatment setting that I was working in, and I wasn't as confined, you know, and I was in my own private practice, I kind of circled back to the psychedelic assisted therapy world. And okay, what's going on with that? You know, where's the research? Where's, where's that going? And I read How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, which has now become really popular, you know, yes. due to the, the Netflix um,
1: documentary. And a great place and to start, if anybody... exactly. You know, just yeah. and just beginning his book and and the documentary is a great source. Yep. So I thought,
2: okay, here we go again. You know, this is this is pointing to something. And then it was, I believe it was 2021 at the Emdrea, um virtual conference. There was a woman named Sunny Strasberg who is great. She's a great resource, mm-hmm. and she did a presentation on um, combining EMDR and psychedelics. And then I finally felt like, okay, here, here's where I land, right? Here's the opportunity to kind of bring this in somehow into my work. Um, and I've learned a lot from her. And since then, over the last couple of years, been really focusing on, you know, de- continuing to develop in, in the EMDR world and really focusing on that, but then figuring out how to kind of weave in, you know, this, psychedelic medicine and how can that facilitate and enhance the work I was already doing. So very awesome to be here at this stage now and super excited and inspired. And that conference just like really solidified my, my interest and very curious
1: to see where it all goes. Me too. Me too. Yeah. So I think most people have probably heard me mention psychedelics in passing, but I don't think I've ever publicly stated why. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I won't go into a lot of detail for many obvious reasons, I think, but I think the, the draw for me is almost entirely personal here in Missouri. We don't have any version of this that is uh legal, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but a couple of things happened that made me realize, um, That not only did I have a you know a personal interest in what they had to offer as far as healing, but that um, it was something that you know we needed to be tracking as far as where the research was. And besides my own personal experience with them, I started having a lot of clients coming in saying that they were having these experiences. And so, you know, one thing that we'll, we'll talk about this more later, but one thing that's always relevant to keep in mind is that even though it's not legal everywhere or all of these medicines are not legal anywhere, in the US at least, um, that doesn't mean that our clients aren't having really important experiences with them. And it, it means that as therapists, we need to have at least a passable knowledge um, so that we can engage with our clients in the ways that they need so that they can have some assistance in processing them, um, preparing for them, Uh, if they choose to do it, because there's so many different ways and opportunities where people can leave the country and experience this or go to states where it is legal. And so as a therapist, especially as a trauma therapist, we need to be ready to um, assist even if we're not the ones that are going to be there for the specific medicine session. Um, So that's another huge reason why I want everybody to be getting ready for this whether right. it's or not in your particular state, because it's happening and it's happening so quickly that it's going to begin to touch you through your clients, whether, um, whether you want to be a psychedelic therapist or not, <laughs> yeah, I, I <laughs> you're, you're going right. to start brushing up against it for sure. Um, so that that's part of why I wanted to, you know, have a, an episode on notice that about it. Um, what I will say is my own kind of personal interest is I think, besides having a child, psychedelic experiences have been the most important experiences of my life, Mm -hmm. which as a human being saying that feels so profound. And yet it's what everybody says, right? (laughs) So it's, it's a strange experience of being quite normal, um, in terms of psychedelic experience. And yet for the individual, it is anything, but, um, it is, it is exactly what a trauma is in the sense of there was a me before and a me after.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the me after psychedelics, at least in my case, um, in every way that matters to me is better. Mm-hmm. And uh, um the, the particular moment in time of when they found me was a, a moment where I really needed something <laughs> that wasn't traditional therapy because I had been going that route, you know, doing MDR, my trauma, I had been on that path for so many years, but was reaching a point where I had done as much as I could in those paths and had um, deconstructed religion and yet had a huge gaping attachment wound where God used to be. Mm, yeah. um, and so in, in a profound um, grief process of missing God, i found or you know in the way that i understand it they found me and mm-hmm. you know psychedelics showed me a different path i don't believe that they are a god <laughs> but they are certainly yeah. a door and a path for a lot of us to discover a spirituality that feels incredibly real and personal and meaningful um and you know i credit so much of my own happiness to what i have learned in those encounters um and none of them were in a therapy setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of my lived experience with them have been outside of that dynamic, which I think has <laughs> been interesting <laughs> and yeah. very educational. Not every experience that I've had has been pleasant, far from it. Yeah. Um, and I, I think as a therapist, um, you know, when we're embarking on imagining ourselves as a, a guide to people uh, using these medicines... I really believe it's important that we have our own experiences, um, and I'm not going to give a list of rules about what that must mean and look like. Um, yeah, but I, I think that we need to be open to doing that because we cannot guide where we refuse to go. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I, I totally am in agreement with that, and that's why I'm,
2: I'm hopeful that all the training programs will eventually, you know, have a, a way for therapists to safely and legally, and you know, like yeah, sa- safely explore these things for themselves because mm-hmm. I really can't imagine, I really can't sitting with a client and, and, and being with them in that space, having no idea what they're going through. I mean, same with EMDR, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I would never, I would tell any therapist, don't ever do any EMDR if you have not done it yourself. It, it's a, it's, there's a, there's a similarity there of kind yeah. of the depths of where you can go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's vital. and And, I have the same experience that even though I had that initial very profound, very beautiful, very spiritual, mystical experience, I have since had a very challenging experience. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I was, you know, at first disappointed in that and then realized, oh, that's important too. Like, it's important to to know what that feels like and to know that that can be part of the journey and it's not a bad thing. Right. It's just a different experience, you know? So... It's not all pretty mm-hmm. all the time. In fact, it can often be very challenging. So yeah. to to experience that firsthand is is actually very valuable if we're going to be doing this with clients.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Danielle, I think before we get into like the nitty gritty of what actually happened at the conference, because it was at least it was five days for me and three days for you, but all of the days were just like jam packed, especially the oh, yeah. three days. Um, and so yeah. there's no way that we're going to be able to cover all of it, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I'm going to cover a lot of it, uh, particularly the pieces that I think are most relevant to our listeners. Um, but before we get into that, I'm I'm just curious. So we both had a day or two to come down off of the high of the conference. <laughs> come back into the real world. Come back yep. into the real world and uh, yep. attempt to reintegrate a little bit. So how would you describe just your general impression that you're walking away uh, from the conference with? And if you were describing to somebody in a paragraph, Mm -hmm. the conference was like this, what what do you think you would say?
2: I would say it was inspiring. It was invigorating. It was connecting. Um, It gave me a lot of hope. It gave me a lot of creativity. I can feel that sort of like bubbling up of, Ooh, what do I want to do with this? You know, um, and exciting and confusing, I will say, because (laughs) it was like, Oh, wow. Look at all these possibilities. And I have no idea how it's actually all going to roll out and how do we actually integrate it and practice it and execute it. And there's so many layers of complicating factors to that. But overall, yeah, exciting, invigorating, inspiring. That's what I would say. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I would say uh, ditto to all of that. And an additional thought of, to me, it felt like academia at its best and worst, right? So <laughs> it, it was a highly academic conference in some ways. Yeah. Like, it was a psychedelic conference so there were some non-academic elements to it and you know the art and the music and all of that was um yeah. better than any academic conference I've ever been to and the wardrobe and the wardrobe oh my gosh <laughs> apparently we all dress the same which is fun you know everybody that uh likes psychedelics really likes color which is fascinating um yeah. But I, the, the thing that was so exciting to me was to get to be in person with a rigorous academic process, sort of live and in an action, like it was happening right there. Um, so mm-hmm. the very first day that you and I were there, we were sitting in the, um, the room where the neuroscientists were presenting their latest research as in not yet published or right. just published last week. Right. So right. just like fresh off the presses and they're in conversation with each other through these presentations they're they're referencing each other citing each other updating their information live uh, you know yeah. on stage as they're they're listening to the the presentations before them um and this this conversation was emerging that felt like a very honest and accurate look at a a field in the making right yeah. um so in the that- very, very exciting. Um, I think the piece that I would agree, there were some challenging elements, the the piece that I probably felt most challenged by and still sort of have a, um, like a knot in my chest that isn't fully resolved, um, is the, the cultural piece of this.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: the um, issues around appropriation, but so much more than that as well, of the danger of pure science and academia, getting hold of something and running it through a scientific process that necessarily has a process of dilution and extraction to it that feels dangerous to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we as individual people don't have a lot of power to influence that, but we do have uh, the ability to be aware of what might be lost in that Mm -hmm. process and what might be gained. And I think we're well beyond the point of stopping what's happening. Like it is happening. It has happened. It's going to continue. And what does it mean to temper the Western science um, and break our habit of ignoring um, different wisdoms and different ways of knowing um, and really, really letting both work together and uh, trying to do better than we've ever done in the past because it is that important. Um, so you know, I'm I'm curious about how you're kind of coming away from the conference regarding that that cultural piece and the the challenge of um, our whiteness and mm-hmm. our our context. Um yeah, I, I'm just very curious about yeah. how you're sitting with all of that. Yeah, I I think it's a big
2: issue and something we have to be really thoughtful about, you know, because this isn't really a new discovery right no. i mean it's it's being presented in a in a way that i think is helpful for people to to know about and to hear about in our culture but it's not like this wasn't already known <laughs> for a long time or by being indigenous used by or being used absolutely you know and and we can't just sort of um pretend that like, oh, this was discovered in, you know, research institutions in the United States by, you know, white male uh, researchers. <laughs> it it wasn't, right? So I don't know. I mean, it's complicated. I I want to believe that we can make use of this information in a way that's respectful, that honors the history, that honors the lineage, that It has humility, right? I mean, I think humility is probably the best word that I can really hold on to. That, like, you know, I'm coming, I'm coming at this from a very humble place. That I don't know very much. I'm very new and novice to this, and there's people that have been doing this for many, many years who know a lot more um, in ways that we haven't even been able to touch yet, that we haven't been able to measure and, you know, um, describe and protocolize if you if you will i know that's probably not a word but um right so yeah i i just think ideally if there was some way that we could partner (laughs) with the people who really um have already had this embedded in their culture for many many years and learn from them and not you know try to steal or take over or um yeah, like overshadow mm-hmm. that history. So I don't know the answer. It's it's complex, but it's it has to be part of the conversation. Absolutely.
1: No, I agree. Um, I think there's some features to it that I kind of want to highlight, not as answers, but really just as more questions and sort of ways of um, helping us all think carefully and mindfully about what is included in this complexity. So to me, and, and this is something that you and I had talked about a little bit, but the difference between um, things like LSD, ketamine, MDMA, um, mm-hmm. these, these lab-created chemicals
2: mm-hmm.
1: that um, act on the nervous system in the way that psychedelic plants also do, but yeah. they, they don't necessarily have an indigenous lineage and tradition. Right. But then as we move into research on um, plants like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the psilocybin mushroom, some of the other mushrooms, uh, also, also there's a lot of individuals that are seeking healing through ayahuasca, which mm-hmm. is not a singular plant, but is necessarily dependent on the indigenous wisdom of the creation mm-hmm. um, of the, the medicine. Um, then we we're kind of venturing into a totally different territory because those those plants have been in partnership with the indigenous people's Um, for more years than we've, you know, been considering what it really means to be healers in our Western culture. Um, So I think like that, that demarcation feels important that they all kind of get clumped together, which is the hard part, right? Yes. yes. And and we, you know, we've been researching these over here. And so it's a really easy leap to then begin researching psilocybin. And yet it's not the same thing. Yeah um and there is the effects experience. can be
2: the effects can be similar which i think is why they do get clumped together you know and kind of the process the preparation the experience the integration can be can be kind of a similar um journey but yes the,
1: in my mind there there is some demarcation i, I agree yeah the, i think that distinction has to be there the other thing that also feels really important is that even with the, the lab created uh, medicines like Ketamine, LSD, MDMA, etc. They are utilizing wisdom from those traditions. Um, you know, the Western tr- tradition did not come up with the importance of set and setting. Those are just the right. words that we put on it, <laughs> right? But yeah, set and setting has been developed in uh, indigenous cultures and shamanic practices um, for generations upon generations. Um, and so, when when we're using that concept we are necessarily borrowing a concept Mm -hmm. from, you know, healers that are outside of our Western culture. Um, and at the very least that must be acknowledged. And -hmm. at the very least we would be dumb not to look at how they've been doing it and to, uh, really honor and respect all of the wisdom that they have been accumulating over generations. Um, and I, I do not personally think it is enough to read about what they've done, and then take it and use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's up to each person to really deeply consider and to hold ourselves and those close to us accountable to reciprocity in whatever way we feel um, Absolutely. That, that that needs to happen. I think there's right. a lot of ways to do that. And I think we need to get more creative about what reciprocity really looks like in these cases. So I could talk passionately about that for <laughs> Good,
2: as we should.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it,
2: uh, I, yeah. It, and, and we just, that's, that's somewhat unique to this model, right, mm-hmm. um, compared to a lot of the other models that we use. We don't yeah. really have as much of that to be concerned about. But in this model, we absolutely do. And, well, it, and- I mean, it literally was, I mean, I'll just say a, a really quick thing about at the end of the conference when everybody was celebrating and it was the closing ceremony, you know, some people came and sort of trampled in and said, Wait a minute, you know, they like disrupted the the ending ceremony to say, wait a minute, you know, we don't feel like there's been quite enough re- representation yeah. of, you know, the indigenous elders and um it, it was somewhat, you know, a little a little wild how they interrupted like that, but they had really good points. And I'm glad that we ended on that note because Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that important to be talking about and considering.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, while while I don't think that the process will stop, I do hope that there is sort of a check for everybody in mm-hmm. how it proceeds and mm-hmm. a kind of uh, attentiveness to the need for reciprocity and respect and at the very minimum honoring where it comes from. And that is really yeah. the very beginning step. Um, And, you know, it's really interesting, Danielle, that this issue is present in a lot of our work, but is rarely talked about. Mm. Um, One of the things that I, you know, always mention when I'm teaching about ego state work is that IFS and ego state work has its lineage in shamanic roots. And we don't talk about that. (laughs) Wow. The the shamanic tradition has soul, soul retrieval and they have been right. teaching about the lost parts of self that leave the body due to trauma. That mm-hmm. is their tradition. And we mm-hmm. have taken that and put our spin on it and made it more clinical. <laughs> wow. um, but there is a lot that we do as Western healers um, that we don't, we don't know what the lineage yeah. is and not um, really uh, aware of how much we have accidentally and yet still do appropriate from those cultures. Um, so my, my final mm-hmm. thought on that before we, um, talk about other features of the conference is that one of the recommendations that I will make for all healers is read about shamanic healing traditions of all mm-hmm. kinds. Um, or, you know, read about Latin American, African, uh, Southern American traditions, right? And the way Mm -hmm. that they've been doing this, because you will recognize some things (laughs) that we are doing. We didn't start much of this. Um, Another thing that's true is in the somatic tradition, it was actually the women and not the male psychoanalysts that were doing Mm -hmm. these things. They just dated each other. And the male psychoanalysts uh, took the (laughs) wisdom of the women somatic practitioners and the body practitioners and gave a clinical application and called it their own. So this Mm -hmm. this habit is out there. And one of the ways... Correcting that in ourselves is to educate ourselves about those traditions so that we at least understand our own lineage and where these ideas came from. So, yeah, that's that's good information, Melissa.
2: And, you know, I'm just thinking I'll say one more thing about it. While I very much agree that we don't want to appropriate, we don't want to steal, we don't want to, you know, disrespect it also kind of speaks to like stumbling upon truth, right? I mean, if we if we discover things, if we truly discover and we're not just trying to kind of steal and put a different name on it, if we if we stumble upon the same thing, well, that means that it's truth in in my mind, right? And so I like to think about it that way too of okay, if we're if we're talking about the same thing, if we're discovering the same thing, great we're, we're maybe calling it different things or maybe we're not even aware that there have been people in other cultures and other you mm-hmm. know times that have been finding the same thing awesome that means that we're on to something good right we're, we're finding truth so to me that's a very exciting um, yeah. when many too. cultures agree
1: right it's a convergence
2: yeah i love yeah. that yeah that that's such a good feeling right to know that okay
1: there's something here or something
2: mm-hmm. really, I I think, sacred, yes. you know, that we're discovering
1: yeah. and yeah. using. Um, well, and I have yeah. so many books that I could recommend if people are interested in going down a research history rabbit hole about mm-hmm. psychedelic traditions all the way back to uh, pre-Christian and Middle mm-hmm. Eastern traditions and Turkey and the Druids were using it. I mean, it's everywhere, right? And so if you want to yeah. read, let me know. <laughs> yeah. I can give you lots of uh, really interesting and beautiful books. Um, okay. So we have several other topics that we want to cover. And so Danielle, I kind of want to turn it over to you so that you can share um, just about the, the current state of the medicines mm-hmm. that are mostly being researched and studied right now. So ketamine, certainly mm-hmm. MDMA, and then just kind of beginning as a wave of research on psilocybin, Um, so if you could just share a little bit about where the field is at as a whole. Yeah. So this will definitely not be
2: exhaustive and, but I'll, I'll try to give a a little bit and we're going to kind of focus on, like she said, MDMA, psilocybin and ketamine. Although those are not, it's not an exhaustive list of things that are getting clumped in with the, the label psychedelics, but they're probably the medicines that we will be most likely to use anytime soon. They're the ones that are, you know, furthest along. So, um, Ketamine is the one that's legal now. And so people have probably been hearing about ketamine assisted therapy. It's becoming more mainstream. Um, ketamine is a schedule three drug. So that's defined as a drug with moderate to low potential for physical and psychological dependence, but with the recognition that there is some medical use. Unlike a Schedule 1 drug, which is what you know MDMA and psilocybin are scheduled as, which are defined. As you know, having no medical use and a high potential for abuse, so ketamine is still you know it's a controlled substance. Still, there's got to be a clear indication for it, but it's it's scheduled differently than the other two. Um, so ketamine has been used for a long time um, in medical settings and hospital settings, you know, emergency settings. But then it was kind of discovered that oh, there's some mental health um, benefit of it as well. And so the generic version of ketamine is used off label. So the the generic version is not FDA approved for any kind of mental health indication, but it's used commonly for that. But again, there has to be a clear indication for it. You can't just, you know, a a prescriber cannot just give ketamine to anybody just because they want to see what it feels like. There needs to be a clear indication, you know, depression, anxiety, um, trauma symptoms, things like that. There is a different form of ketamine called Spravato. It's a nasal spray. And that is actually FDA approved for treatment resistant depression. Um, So that's patented and it's more expensive. So in the conference, I saw somebody talking about some efforts to try to get the generic form of ketamine, which is much cheaper, (laughs) FDA approved for um, mental health indications so that it's not just being used off-label. Um, So that's available for us. But again, it's, you know, it's still not to be used like willy nilly, right? There still has to be an important indication for it. Um, MDMA, you know, like I said, that's a schedule one drug. It was being used in couples therapy, uh, but then made illegal in like the early to mid 80s. I actually met somebody at the conference who used to use it in her couple's therapy work. And she was so oh. happy to see that it was coming back around as a tool because she said it was so helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, psilocybin was made illegal around 1970. Um, again, a schedule one drug. There have been a couple states um, that are trying to sort of pass some measures to decriminalize um, like Colorado, Oregon, so you know there's there's some movement there but for the most part it's um you know it's not really a medicine that we can use um in most places but but we'll see what happens um, in those two states and maybe some other states mm-hmm. um as far as the research you know ketamine is has already been established in the literature for a long time um, treatment resistant depression was the primary indication that it was studied Most for, but since, you know, we've seen stuff about anxiety and trauma symptoms. So we're kind of expanding the use of it, but it really had its roots in treatment resistant depression. um, Was, um, you know, when people discovered that it had these kind of rapid antidepressant um, qualities, that's how it was being used. And now we're trying to figure out, you know, other ways that it can be helpful for people. Um, MDMA has a lot of important research going on. So there's an organization called MAPS, that's who actually put on the conference that we went to. um, That stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. So they've put out a ton of important research um, and have completed the phase three clinical trials with very promising results, looking at using MDMA to treat PTSD. And so Rick Doblin, who was the founder of Maps at the conference, said mm-hmm. that they are planning to submit a new drug application to the FDA this year, um, which is you know how you get a drug into the system to be approved um, for some sort of indication, and that his hope is that it would be approved by mid 2024. So mm-hmm. we'll see if that if that's true. Um, who knows what that's actually going to look like in terms of how, you know, if it gets FDA approved, what what will that look like? How will that roll out? Who will have access to it? Who can prescribe it? Who can use it? You know, I don't know. It remains to be seen, but pretty incredible. I mean, Rick Doblin and, and MAPS have been working very hard for decades yeah. to get that approved. And it's looking pretty good. So we'll mm-hmm. see. Yeah. Um, psilocybin. Um, is not quite as far along as MDMA, but some really good work is going on. Um, I know of at least two organizations that have done some some big work. Um, Compass Pathways is one of them. The USONA Institute is another. So, um, Compass, I believe, has gotten as far as phase three of clinical trials, and they're looking at using psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. And USONA, I believe, is in phase two of their clinical trials, and they're looking at psilocybin for major depressive disorder. So, you know, the way that the research works is they pick a certain condition, right, a certain indication, and they've got to do their randomized controlled trials, you know, to see if it works for those particular indications. And then my hope is that as time goes on, we will see that wider indications, you know, they can be applied to wider indications, such as, you know, trauma symptoms or anxiety symptoms. But first, they've got to kind of pick a a condition that they think it's going to be helpful for and, and study that really, you know, closely. Um, you want to talk about Bessel and, and Schwartz, the, oh, the two yeah. big names that we saw yeah. at the conference. Um, this is fun. <laughs> yeah. So we we were both very excited to see Bessel Vanderkolk present. And he was there because he was one of the principal investigators in the maps trials um, for MDMA. And he was specifically looking at developmental trauma. Yeah. And, you know, not just the big T traumas, the, the PTSD diagnosis types of traumas, but can MDMA be helpful for developmental trauma mm-hmm. and had some really, really cool results
1: on that. Yeah. Yeah. I w- I was particularly inspired by um, listening to him talk. First of all, I think just the, the presence of someone like him is so um, supportive because it adds a legitimacy for mm-hmm. Our field, um, you know, because he's like the grandpa of traumatology. <laughs> and so if, if he says yes, then <laughs> you know, people are going to pay attention to that. So I was just really pleased yeah. that he was there. Um, you know, I think it communicates to the field as a whole, like this is not a fringe movement. Right. right? No, th- this yeah. is not um a thing that's gonna be kind of off to the side of mental health. In a decade, mm-hmm. it will be front and center, it will be a way that most people are receiving treatment and healing. Like that is the direction that we're headed simply mm-hmm. because the, the research is showing that that yeah. um when you know when there's medicines that can get long-lasting results from a handful of sessions yeah. and does not require ongoing Um, you know, taking a medication Mm -hmm. for the rest of your life. Like those, those are the kinds of results that will shift a whole field. And that's why the conference was 12,000 people and people like Bessler van der Kolk and, you know, Richard Schwartz, like they're all there because they can tell, too this is where we're going. Um, So I, you know, just for, for a cultural reason, I was very glad to see him there. It felt very affirming. Mm -hmm. Um, Plus it was just like, cool. Is it, (laughs) <laughs> a fun yeah. human experience, be like. Well, there he is. Like he's just being yep. breathing human man, a brilliant man, um, yep. and uh, you know, hearing him once again beat the drum of the developmental trauma diagnosis, and yeah. our need to really get real about. The illegitimacy of the DSM um, and how much it is hamstringing us as a field and confusing new clinicians, mm-hmm. um, you know that's something that we talk about it beyond constantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, it, it I, felt good. I can yeah. agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that that part of it felt really good, and I think you know what he was sharing about the results that they were seeing in their MDMA trials for developmental trauma personally felt really interesting and exciting. Because Absolutely. that is the the potential in to widen the net of who gets access to these medicines. Right. Because as long as we're using a very strict definition of mm-hmm. PTSD, then only people that qualify for that very strict definition of either treatment-resistant depression, mm-hmm. which means they have to first try many other medications. And fail. And right. fail at them, which is a lot of years of suffering. Which is good. Right. right. So my Siri my watch is agreeing with me. She just said, <laughs> oh, <good." laughs> I'm going to take my watch off. Um, but his, his work is uh kind of beginning to open that door a little wider and show why um you know people need to access these medications sooner in the process. We need to not mm-hmm. wait so long, etc. Um yeah. And then Richard Schwartz was there talking about the intersection yeah. of psychedelics and IFS. Um, yeah. You got to sit in on his his day long seminar. I was doing yeah. some and uh, sat in on just one of his his shorter ones. So, do you want to talk a little bit about the day long seminar and what you felt about it? Yeah, yeah. So that was a pre conference workshop. It was a it was a half day. It was four hours,
2: but it was with Richard Schwartz and Sunny Strasberg, who I mentioned earlier, who has been one of my influences. Um, and they shared about how they are starting to do some trainings on combining cap, um, ketamine assisted psychotherapy with IFS. And they showed some video that was just amazing. Um, they were actually using low dose. Um, and and we'll, if we have some time, maybe we can get into talking about, you know, high dose versus low dose, um, and what that looks like in therapy, but they showed some video of, um, how the, the IFS, um, process was so like catalyzed and facilitated by a low dose of ketamine and how people just quickly got into this space of so much self-compassion and ability to kind of go to their trauma. Um, So, yeah. And then he talked about how in some of the MDMA work anecdotally, I don't, I don't know if this was measured very quantitatively, but anecdotally um, people would spontaneously start doing parts work like 80% of the time, you know, with, with no, prompting of it, just in the state of the medicine, they would be able to kind of access these different parts and talk about it with parts language. So he seems to be a big proponent of, you know, um, of of using, and I, and I even asked him, I went up after the workshop and I said, okay, well, when, when should we use Mm -hmm. something like ketamine, you know? And he said, well, in my mind, when you're getting stuck, Right? Let's say you're you're trying to do some work, whether it's with ifs or you know, i'm I'm imagining he would even say the same thing about something like EMDR. When you're confronted with these parts that are so strong for very good reason, these very strong def- you know, um protective parts who who don't want to let the person really go to the vulnerable you know trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, this is when something like ketamine might be really helpful to kind of just. Um, facilitate that a little bit but he was very careful to say like we still need to very much partner with these protective parts and not try to just you know bulldoze right past them right that even though something like ketamine can kind of soften those parts and help us get to the the deeper trauma we don't want to just you know disrespect those parts by, Oh, let's just load you up with some ketamine and go straight to the trauma. They were very careful to say, no, that is, that is not the point. That is not what we're doing. Yeah. And in the preparation, we really need to work with all the the parts to make sure everyone's on board. Right. Mm -hmm. So I really liked the way they talked about that. It felt very respectful and very, um, yeah, careful about using these medicines. So that was great.
1: Yeah, I um, felt very inspired just listening to not not just Richard, but um, one of the women uh, that works on the John Hopkins team. I went to an all day workshop that she did um, and just listening to the way that they're conducting their sessions and how um, deep they're going and how how much are everything that we know about good therapy is really (laughs) relevant in that context as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah, And so the the, watching them blended was very inspiring to me. It's not like um, we're doing an entirely different thing. And yet there is also space for these medicines to be experienced without a lot of intervention by the therapist. Mm-hmm. And so it has this uh, flexibility to it, depending mm-hmm. on um, what the stuck point is, depending on the client's comfort level, depending on the therapist's capabilities, et cetera. Um, and so there, there's still a lot of work to be done on clarifying all of those nuances and um, how these different ways of interacting with the medicine and blends of therapeutic mm-hmm. modalities with psychedelics. What what I wonder about, what I think is going to happen, because this is what her does, this is yeah. making a prediction and nothing more, um, is that there will be this rush for everybody that is a proponent of any particular modality to say, yeah. oh, we should blend psychedelics with our modality, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can do that. In fact, you and I are going to talk about how we blend mm-hmm. with, <laughs> with psychedelics. because. Right. Uh, because that's relevant. But I, th- I think what's important to note is that all of those modalities um, are a good blend with psychedelics because they're good therapy. Mm-hmm. And the the essential core of IFS ego state work, EMDR, um, attachment focused therapies, AEDP, um, all of those different really good therapies, um, they blend well with psychedelics because they are. Honoring of the person's nervous system, yes. and partner with the natural processes of the human nervous system, and so right. whatever modality does that well is going to be a good blend with psychedelics and vice versa. Um, and so I think there there's just a big world of creativity that will begin to open up as we you know get more access to these ways of working. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm just excited to see where it all goes and and what we can Me do.
2: Me too, definitely. Um, We might want to just say, you want to say just a word here about the neuroscience. We don't have to get into the nitty gritty of it because there's that's real complicated stuff. But there's a ton there. Uh Um, We'll just throw out the name Robin Carhart Harris. He's someone that you definitely want to check out if you haven't heard of him before. Um, He's done some really good um, neuroscience. And, you know, I guess I'll just throw out a few words um, that we heard a lot. Neuroplasticity. Default mode network. We yeah. won't go into detail. I don't think we have time to really go into detail about know. what that is. <laughs> I love the default mode network. Yeah, it's so important. But that's that's <laughs> something you want to know about if you don't know about and and just kind of this um, cognitive flexibility. So, and then there was some talk about you know memory reconsolidation and can that be a possible mechanism? You know these all these concepts of like unlearning and relearning. So things that are very very relevant to EMDR that we want to. Probably know about so too much to cover here, but I just wanted to say a word about that. That there was some some really cool stuff being talked about at the conference.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think Danielle, I want you to have time to share about something that you're gonna uh, be offering for people that um, are interested in kind of furthering their their next step with um, this field, and particularly the combination of uh, CAP and EMDR. Um, before we get to that though, there was just a couple of random things that I wanted to mention. And one is that, um, as therapists, we need to be aware that there is a thriving underground use, Mm uh, network and a underground psychedelic, uh, therapy movement that has never stopped since the Mm sixties. Um, so. The, this idea that it's you know this new thing that's happening is a bit misleading, and so yeah. um, what what is happening is that it is more public, it's more mainstream, and the the research has begun again. Um, in a traditional Western research context. Um, but there are a lot of individuals that have been doing this for decades, even here in America, um, in the US. Mm-hmm. And um, so you're gonna have clients that begin to talk about experiences that they've had many years ago because it's now more socially accepted to admit that these things have been happening all along. <laughs> right. The other thing that's true is that as it becomes more mainstream, it will actually galvanize the underground network, not quiet it down. Because they're more mainstream, people will go looking. They're mm-hmm. not easy to get in a a uh, legal way, so people will be finding underground ways of accessing these medicines because people are desperate for healing and help. Um, and not to mention cost, too. Right?
2: Yeah. I mean, let's face oh gosh, it: yeah. bringing these medicines into psychotherapy is, is great, but it's it's not going to be cheap. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of time, and so. While I would love for people to be able to, you know, have these experiences with very skilled therapists who are used to going to deep places with people, it's going to be hard to make this accessible, right? I'm already dealing with that in my practice right now of how do I price this and make it accessible, but yet it's a lot of time for me. And, you know, so that's, I think, more um, reason why not everyone's going to choose to go to a therapist. For something like this and you know what i'm okay with that <laughs> personally as yes. long as who they're going to is is you know skilled and experienced and and has their own mentorship and, and community mm-hmm. i'm not mad about that but you know we we have to realize that's that's going to still happen it's not this won't only be in therapist's office that this is happening
1: guaranteed by right. far <laughs> right but one of the features of this that's a little bit tricky but you know just speaking honestly and and bluntly to all of us in this field, there is a ethical issue of of being educated enough to provide harm reduction information to clients that are going to seek out these medicines in an underground way. So mm-hmm. it, it feels very important to me that we know enough and feel ready to give good guidance to people that want it and need it, even when we are not in a state, That makes it legal. For instance, if you have a client that is going to seek out one of these medicines, it feels important to me to be able to say, if and when you choose to do Mm -hmm. that, look here, take these routes and not these routes, right? right? Be careful about where you're getting the medicines. Consider going to a state where it is legal. You know, so so being educated enough to give harm reduction education to our clients that are that are going to be looking for these things, if they do decide to go overseas, help them do the research on what program they're going to. Get involved mm-hmm. in them taking that, that action step on their own behalf. Um, it, that feels like an ethical thing for me as a, as a yeah. therapist and a healer that we at least know enough to do harm reduction work with them. Right. Um, So we're going to try to uh, create a platform where we can be sharing information with each other so that regardless of whether it's legal in our state or not, we can start to do this harm reduction work with our clients. So on um, the community page, our Beyond Healing community, um, we're going to have a dedicated group to conversing about this. And the the focus of it will be um, exchanging information for the purpose of harm reduction and educating ourselves as healers and as therapists to, to give good, solid information and to ask questions of each other about how mm-hmm. this is rolling out, because it's it's happening, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's happening quickly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, you know we'll also put on that platform a link to your offering, Danielle. So if you want to talk about what you're going to be up to, I'm so excited to be able to support this and, and offer this to our community.
2: Yeah, thank you.
1: Okay, so at least for now, where I'm starting
2: is with um, a consultation group series. So this will be a an EMDR consultation group. Um, the first installment of it will start this fall in mid September. Um, it'll be focused on incorporating psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, probably mostly ketamine since that is, you know, what we have available, but I'll I'll provide some more information about the other medicines, but um, incorporating that into the eight phases of EMDR. So we're still very much going to stay rooted in EMDR. It will be an EMDR consultation group infused with psychedelic assisted therapy. Mm -hmm. So we'll meet monthly for four months, again, starting in September, ending in December. And this group is going to be open to clinicians who have already completed their initial basic training and the accompanying 10 hours of consultation for emdr people need to have that you know foundation this is not going to be a intro to emdr so people need to have that um, completed Um, there's going to be four two-hour group sessions so at least for this first um, series it'll be a total of eight hours of consultation and that would count towards EMDR certification, if anybody, you know, is pursuing that. <clears throat> and the format will be, will be that I'll provide some didactic lecture. And then of course, there'll be time for questions and case presentations. And, you know, okay, I have a client that's going out and doing this, how do I prepare them? Or how do I help them integrate? Or, you know, maybe there will be people who are already doing some ketamine work, and they're trying to figure out, well, how do I blend that with EMDR? So It'll be open to people who know basically nothing about psychedelics, but are EMDR therapists and want to learn how to, you know, combine the two. And then people who maybe are already getting their feet wet with some psychedelic work and want to get better at that. Um, And the cost will be $300 for the whole series. And this won't be the only time that I offer it, but this will be the first first installment. And eventually down the line, I plan to have a more formal training, but we're going to start here in the, the group format. And so, yeah, so you'll put a link in the community and then people can also just find information on my website, which is integratedhealingcenter.com. And if you go to the consultation page in the menu, you'll see more information about it and be able to sign up there too.
1: Mm-hmm. It's so exciting. I'm, I'm, I know. I'm yeah. very excited about it. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. just such an inspiring area. And you and I were both a little bit shocked and dismayed that EMDR was not represented at all anyway. Yeah. Well,
2: hardly, hardly, hardly. Like I said, Sunny Strasberg is, is someone who has talked about it, but she's talking a lot about IFS these days. And yeah. then I think there was one other talk where it barely got mentioned. So mm-hmm. um, there's lots of room for creativity and growth in combining the two. And I just think they're going to go together very well. I, I really believe that people that are skilled EMDR therapists will be very good candidates to become a psychedelic therapists with appropriate training, you know, um, because of the territory that we're already used to. There, there's a lot of overlap. So yeah. and I, I want to clarify, I want to specify that the group that I'm offering is not going to be a substitute for training in psychedelic assisted therapy. You know, I will talk about where people can go to get the training, but
1: um yeah, that's going to be
2: important. So
1: agreed. It does count for certification hours. Yeah. Per- yeah, yeah, yeah. Is- yep. mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think um, a final concluding thought uh, that I might share is um, this is one of those areas that for a long time has felt like a rather solitary internal pursuit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and same. this, this <laughs> conference and, you know, my my connection and, and friendship with you and all of our conversations and then sharing it in this platform and on the community feels like a uh, a little birth of a privately cultivated and nurtured part of myself coming out more publicly, <laughs> which feels I, exciting and vulnerable at the same time. I can totally relate to that, especially, like I said, with my background
2: in the 12-step community and addiction treatment, it has felt taboo. And it finally feels like, okay, let's just talk about it. You know, there's nothing to hide here. This is good stuff. And and by the way, I think we need to say before we end, it is not a cure-all. It is not a panacea. It does not work for everyone. They made that very, very clear in the conference. And it will not be indicated for everyone, right? So... There's a lot of hype and we've got to really manage the expectations, mm-hmm. but I think it can be very, very helpful when paired with very good therapy yes. or with healers that know what they're doing in right. indigenous cultures.
1: Yes. Yeah. And so. I think that uh, there's just a swell of research and information that is compelling all of us to open up to this, and even for those of us that don't have personal experiences that have convinced us of their utility (laughs) and importance, um, the research alone is incredibly compelling. Um, And just as a little anecdote of that, I had uh, two uh, medical doctors here in town several months ago reach out to me um, because they had been reading all of Johns Hopkins' uh, Mm. research And Mm -hmm. um, one of them is about the most straight-laced conservative individual (laughs) I've had a lot of contact with. And he said, I hate that they're right, but it's too good to ignore. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, and that is that the research is that good. And it has been that repeated. um, It is getting the attention of people that would have never, ever considered it uh, culturally and personally. And so I'm, I'm just glad that we got to be there for what feels like the beginning of something that will be around for a very long time. This feels like a, a and for a lot of people. So
2: thank you for being
1: here with me, Danielle. It was quite a, yes, it uh, was with you. So
2: it really was. I'm so, I'm so glad to have shared it with somebody who's passionate and comes from a similar, you know, therapy background. We think very much alike and how we were applying the things that we learned. Um, Yeah, it was great to share it with you. All right,
1: everybody. So we'll we'll make that group on the community and um, you can find us there. You can always email me directly and Danielle shared her uh, contact information as well through her website. Thank you so much for listening and for joining us on this rather exciting uh, beginning of a journey. And we will look forward to interacting with you online. Take care. Thank
2: you.
0: We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.